Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late El Emanuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. This is the last of four episodes describing a typical year in mid-century Bombay. With wind and snow every day, El Emanuel crosses the bay on the ice, reports on shortages of fuel and food, prepares for and celebrates Christmas, joins the mummers, and hosts a New Year's Eve party. It was winter on the hill. When I first moved into my house on the hill, everyone said I wouldn't stay, not after Christmas, not up on that hill alone with only the cemetery above me. To tell the truth, I wasn't sure myself, but I had an idea the experience would be worth the trouble. They warned me that nobody here dies in the winter, so Graveyard Hill, the narrow, rock-strewn track to my house along which I drove in first gear, was never ploughed. But they didn't know the magic monotony of life perched there between the bay and the low serrated hills, with the sky wide as the ocean, the sameness balanced by the excitement of storms and drifting snow, and the full moon on starry, frosty nights seen through an icicle. The air twinkles in the clear, frosty, early morning sun. More than summer was winter beautiful in Bombay, in breathtaking, bone-chilling storms, or in cloudless calm, when the sun warms us and casts blue shadows over mountains and gorge in an ever-changing panorama. And at night, when the moon was full, I watched the bay through binoculars. Outside it looked as if there was a spotlight on the landscape, all shadows black, the snow-covered surface absolutely sparkling and reflecting the moon like a cracked mirror. Our lives revolved around the barometer and the cloud formation. Each morning we would wait for the verdict of the first one to go outdoors. Was it bitterly cold or coming on a mild? No one would dare be quite certain, for wind would spring up in the gulf without warning and envelop us in drifts thicker than any fog. Caught in such an unexpected storm, we would remain where we were until it passed. If outdoors, hunched with backs to the wind and heels dug in. If indoors, unhappy prisoners. Pretty soon, snow fell and my hill became a steep, rocky mountain, lovely to contemplate, but hell to climb. Fortunately, I had earlier brought up supplies, oil for my stove, kerosene for my lamps, and food enough to feed an army. One afternoon, after a big storm, we were watching the ice on the bay. It was four foot thick in the arm and at least twenty foot thick at the mouth where the drift ice had rafted, and the hull was weighted with tons of snow. "'Come here and look,' called Jane. "'Are my eyes playing tricks, or is the shed moving?' Gale-force winds blowing straight on the coast had whipped up waves of such strength that they forced themselves under the ice clear into the arm. As the ice rose and fell, it lifted the piers and pushed the sheds built on them onto the road at drunken angles. It was unbelievable that swells could lift such enormous weights, and yet we couldn't deny the evidence of our eyes. The excitement of that event we talked about for days. One clear night, we had gathered in the community hall for an after-wedding celebration. At midnight, when the older guests went home, 
The sky was loaded with stars, but at one o'clock we found that we couldn't open the door for drifts, nor could we see two feet beyond the gleam of our lamps. Sixteen of us, including the bride and groom, spent the night in sleepy games of crib and snoozing uncomfortably in wooden chairs. At daylight, the villagers had to shovel us out. The next day dawned calm and clear. I thought I would cross the ice to Norris Point to see a friend, but M. warned me I was not to go alone, nor was I to attempt walking, for I might stray near the tickle, which was always open because of the rip tides that met as they flowed from opposite arms of the bay. I knew from experience how quickly the wind and drifts could blot out the shore, but still I wanted to go. M. couldn't accompany me, for she had tripped on her skates a few days before and gashed her knee painfully, and was now fuming in the house, occupying her hands with a complicated piece of needlework. Ed came in, stamping snow from his boots in the outer porch, and opened the door to shout out that Bill was just harnessing his horse for a trip across the bay, and that if I hurried I might just catch him. The house erupted into frenzied activity as M. brought my parka and boots, Mab my gloves, and everyone asking, did I have a pair of windproof mittens? Was my scarf in my pocket in case I had to tie it over my face against the wind? I concluded they thought I was on my way to the Arctic. Bill's cumbersome wooden sled attached to a brown mare held only Grandma Holt, bundled in blankets up to her eyes but already shivering. She had been laid up with a wonderful pain for more than a week and was now going across to the cottage hospital. Most winters, Bill told me, they could take sick people to hospital more comfortably than this, either by boat over open water or in the warmth of a snowmobile over ice. But this winter, the weight of the snow had pushed the ice so far down that the salt water oozed up and turned the surface to yellow slush that was impossible for a snowmobile to traverse, except in rare times of well below zero, and then only in the very early morning. So off we started. When we came to the middle of the bay, the horse was belly-deep in slush and quite unable to drag the heavy sled. So Bill and I floundered along, sometimes knee-deep in snow, sometimes walking over a stretch of frozen crust. The knife-keen wind brought tears to our eyes and made my cheeks ache. I draped the scarf over my face so that only my eyes were visible. Poor Mrs. Holt was almost frozen. But in half an hour we were on the other shore, and I went my separate way while Bill deposited his passenger at the hospital. I was to meet him at the church for the return journey, but after my visit and a long walk in delirious sunshine, I couldn't find him. Presently, a man with snowshoes slung on his back told me Bill's horse was still outside the hospital door and that he'd be along directly. As I waited, I watched a snowshoed figure whipping over the ice from the other side of the bay, and I thought, ah, I'll walk anyhow, and Bill would catch me before I'm halfway across the bay. Of course, I remembered the dire warnings, but on such a civil day with snowshoe tracks to follow and Bill close behind, I knew I would be safe. But what I didn't know was the incredible difficulty of walking, even with my experience on the way over. I floundered in slush for nearly two miles until I discovered a new rhythm of walking. You have to lean forward all the time, half falling on your face so that your legs come out of the deep holes and forward in one movement. Wind on the mountains blew snow like smoke down into the valleys. The dark green hills were outlined with a clean black line of trees. 
Everything gleamed with brilliance that was painful to my eyes, which I could only open for a momentary glance. Where little brooks tore down the mountainsides and cut deep beds, the banks were edged with snow overhangs like scalloped lace. The swift-changing landscape gave me no space for fatigue or fear. I thought instead of the 19th-century writer who described the nervous hysteria of nature and wondered how he would respond to this. When I finally arrived at the house, M said, My God, your face, it's like an old boot, and your eyelashes are white with frost. Well, I walked, I told her. You idiot. And then, recovering from her surprise, she said, If you didn't intend to go on the sled, why didn't you take your skis with you? Skis, I asked, on ice? Why not? Use the things the way God and the Norwegians meant them to be used, for traveling. You'd get across the bay in half the time with a tenth of the work. Now, it hadn't occurred to me to use skis for anything but running downhill, but from then on I used them on unplowed roads, over ice and through woods, and so came to the proper enjoyment of skiing. Much later that day, Bill returned, rather concerned for my safety. He had a note from Mrs. Holt for her daughter, who was at that moment in Mab's kitchen having a mug-up. Grandma Holt had lived her entire life in a small cove, remote and isolated, where her grandparents' Devon speech had lived in her and her children. She called wet, clinging snow Clitty, and described a smooth hillside cleared of trees and gently sloping as suant. She closed her back door with a haps and her shed door with a wooden bar called a toggle. She never went visiting, but cruised around. And when I visited her in hospital and she confided that she would love a nightingale to keep her shoulders out of the draft, we ransacked the village for a woolen shawl to drape over her. About this time the village was nearing a crisis. The previous summer had been rainy, and although the grass grew high, much of it had rotted before it dried to hay. Now people with horses, sheep, and cows were obliged to cut down on animal rations, and to scrape shed floors for wisps. The horses with their ribs showing looked pitiful. The sheep wandered the roads picking up scraps, and the cows looked disconsolate where they stood knee-deep in the snow-covered fields. And worse was that the village merchants had reached the end of their supplies not only of hay, but also of oats. And even in the large towns animal feed was scarce since the ice on the gulf and the snow on the railway line had brought freight hauling to a trickle. And then one memorable morning a three-ton truck appeared, loaded with bales of hay that disappeared like frost before a July sun. Millions of sparrows flew in for the leavings, and according to Steve, made an awful charm with their twittering. Ed's cow was so happy with the new sweet hay that she gave enormous quantities of milk. But another crisis was building up. Nobody had stored away enough coal for the stoves and furnaces, and this severe winter made such inroads into the coal that we were now down to a few lumps, aided and stretched by birch billets that we hated burning, since it meant endless trips to the shed for stoking the stove. Why the merchants didn't put enough coal in their vast sheds to tide the village over, and incidentally to make a few dollars by charging extra in March for coal stowed in November, was hard to understand. Then there was Christmas. In my childhood in Lewisport, a sure sign was the appearance of a small barrel of grapes from Spain, packed in sawdust. 
To whet our appetite for the next day's feast, the traditional Christmas Eve supper was boiled salt herring and potatoes. Only then would we decorate the tree and put our gifts underneath. With the glow of colored lights and candles in the window, we would sit by the tree and sing carols. Us older children would bundle up in woolens, gather outside a friend's house, and set off to sing for invalids and shut-ins. We would walk quietly on the frosty, crunchy snow, up the lane from the road to a house set in a field, and sing ragged but lustily, O oh, come all ye faithful, then on to other houses till we could go no farther. Returning home for a warm-up and a hot drink, we'd get into our best caps and coats with a little corsage of pine cones and a red ribbon on the collar, and head off to the midnight service at church. Walking home, the northern lights would sometimes swirl across the sky and hang curtains of subtle green and yellow and turquoise all over the sky, and the mystery of Christmas would strike us afresh. In Bombay, Christmas season started around the 1st of November. Woody Point did have a few shops, but they couldn't compare with the glossy colors and fascinating shapes of the things in the mail-order catalogs. Now, the lovely Christmas I'm now talking about was in the early 1950s, when we could first count on the prices in the catalogs, because up to Confederation in 1949, we always paid import duty and never knew ahead what that amount would be. Every afternoon I would drop in on friends on my way to fetch the mail, and I would find them all, dinner dishes washed, sitting at the table with the stove roaring hot, poring over the mail-order catalogs. It was always, Have a cup of tea now, my dear. You're no hurries. There's plenty of time. And now tell me which one of these you get for Bill, or Wanda, or Mary, or whoever, and I would be asked for advice on everything from hair ribbons to snow boots. Then together we'd make out the order, Lord, how complicated we thought the forms, and trudged through the mud in the late afternoon to the post office. Soon it came time for the all-important shopping trip to Deer Lake, the nearest big town, my little car groaning with plump ladies and their equally plump lists. There we bought fruits, candies, nuts, and, of course, bottles of Christmas cheer before heading home. What a night that was, the hills like cardboard cutouts against the starry sky as we started down the struggle to the bay below, trees sprinkled with white and frost crunching under the tires, and the last woman out saying, Now, my dear, don't go home to your cold house. Come in for supper. Later I walked up the hill to my house with the white moon sailing over the hills, lighting up the black water. The quiet was beyond belief. Accompanying all this activity was smells, the like of which don't exist anymore, I swear. The number of back doors I went through to be greeted with shouts of delight as cookies, cakes, and all sorts of goodies came from the ovens in perfect shape and were offered to me, for sampling, of course. Far more food than any self-respecting middle-aged woman should eat in a twelve-month. On Christmas Eve, most of the villagers went to the church, which smelled of fir boughs and candles, and we'd sing old carols. That year, outside the church, there was something grand and new and marvelous, an outdoor tree decorated with hundreds of colored lights. You see, this was our first Christmas with electricity, so we went whole hog. A tree in front of the church, one on the highest hill above the village, decorated by the village council, and two small trees lit with blue lights on the veranda of one of the merchant's houses. 
The children gasped in wonder, and so did we. The next morning the sun rose over the far hills on a white world, and the frosty air glittered and danced as if it were folded in Christmas paper and tied with silver ribbon. Empty the village road was, but not lonely, for I knew that in every house the children were opening and gloating over their presents. Nothing moved outside but the hovering gulls and the clouds. No sound broke the stillness until the church bells rang out and people appeared from everywhere in their Christmas finery. Then I went feasting with my friends who knew that my sons were thousands of miles away. What love and friendship they gave me on that Christmas day. For the next few days all was quiet and slow, a time for visiting the old and housebound with some of our best baking and a jar of jam or some grapes. Then the fun began. I recall, though it hardly seems possible now, that we had five parties in a row, none of which broke up before the early morning and some that went on till after breakfast. Somehow we would find time to sleep and wash dishes and prepare food for the next spree. And what wonderful finery turned up, the prettiest girls I've ever seen, looking like fashion pictures from the catalogues, the latest in jewelry, hairdos six inches high, the latest dances, too, which led to the apex of the evening when one of the girls would pull Grandpa, much the worst for dipping into the punch bowl, onto the floor to teach him to jive. Often we would start the night with jannying, mummering as some call it, Right after six o'clock supper, we would get into our fantastic costumes, oilskins inside out, oversized trousers with ancient fancy jackets, long skirts with glossy black covered bonnets, anything as long as what was underneath kept us warm in the sub-zero weather. Off we'd go in groups of five or six, masked and disguised. Our ploy, and this was traditional, was to knock on the back door, request admittance, pour into the kitchen and find a place to sit, even on the floor. We'd be offered a drink or a slice of dark cake and be plied with questions, the answers to which might give the hosts a clue as to our identity. If the kitchen was big enough, we'd line up for a square dance, drawing our hosts into it, or someone would sing a folk song or a carol or would recite, always in falsetto. The result was hysterically funny, so that we'd emerge into the frosty air with our masks wet with sweat and tears. I had a party, too, open house on New Year's Eve. I never knew before the pleasure of being hostess to an entire village. In the afternoon, tea and cakes for the elderly who came uphill on horse and sled. Then from eight in the evening to four in the morning, with a break for the watch-night service, friends poured in. Pea-soup simmered on the stove in a great vat, and the music never stopped. The next morning the sun was a creamy, misty disk. A triangle of shiny silver shone on the water. Snow drifted downward infinitely slowly, patches of blue over the hill behind the house, windows a forest of palms, flowers like morning glories on the pane. Several weeks later, I dropped the pencil on the floor and it rolled swiftly to the other end of the house. I found that I'd tilted about five degrees thanks to the combined weight of my guests stomping out the rhythm of the squidging ground. I had to have the sills jacked up to straighten the floor, but it was worth it. I would not be surprised if my New Year's Eve party has now gone down in the folk history of Bombay. Bon
That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmore National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening.